This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide, a true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Miss Ruby Wild and Miss Mayday. We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups. Hello, today's going to be a little bit different of an episode. Miss Mayday is prepping to take off for a little bit, so we decided that instead of missing a week, I'm going to go ahead and tell you an anthology. And since everybody's getting ready to travel, I figured what better storylines to cover than hotel murders, because, you know, we all want you to feel nice and safe on vacation, right? Today we're going to start in Detroit, Michigan in July of 1930. Enter the lobby of Hotel LaSalle, a.k.a. Savoy Hotel, a.k.a. Hotel Detroiter. We will be present for the murder of radio personality Jerry Buckley. He was well known at the time for being an outspoken man and calling for the recall of the city mayor Charles Bowles, an effort that succeeded amidst all the corruption allegations surrounding him. He also was outspoken against the racketeering and the bootleggers happening all around the time even though he was falsely accused of being a racketeer himself. So this particular day, he was called to the lobby by Margaret Owen, a burlesque actress who invited him to a recall party, you know, celebrating that joyous event that he helped create. So he went to the lobby, sat down in a chair with his newspaper. At that time, a taxi driver noted a man talking to three men who entered the lobby. The driver then heard shots and the three men fled. What happened was, Two of the three men shot at Jerry 12 times. He was struck by 11 of the bullets. He had been murdered. When police were investigating, they found out that Margaret was in the hospital from drinking poisoned alcohol. So the woman who called him down into the lobby wound up having her alcohol poisoned and it sent her to the hospital. She admitted to inviting Jerry to the lobby on behest of another man. Then she was delayed from attending the party herself. She claims that she had no idea of what was about to happen or the murder taking place. Police wound up arresting six known mobsters, but eventually all were released and the murder was forever listed as unsolved. Don't worry, we have plenty more. We're going to fly off to Christchurch now in New Zealand in 1933. Now we're going to check in at Rickerton Racecourse Hotel. We have the owners, Donald and Elizabeth Frazier. They're living in the hotel with their daughter, Joyce, and son, Clutha, along with a visiting cousin, unnamed. That night, the married couple had been drinking in their hotel bar, and they actually owned this hotel since 1929, so about four years now. Donald was known to be an angry and aggressive drunk. And this night, he actually did happen to become drunk. So the hotel bar was supposed to be long shut down, according to the laws, and it was staying open after hours to allow this couple to drink, along with some of their hotel guests. They owned the bar. They were like, we're staying open. The hotel guests, woo! Well, like I said, Donald 
imbibed a little bit too much, and that night in November, Elizabeth states that she helped her husband into bed just before midnight, and they promptly fell asleep together. She then awoke to a loud bang in the bedroom, and Donald was bleeding in the bed next to her. He had been shot twice in the chest by a double-barrel shotgun. She then ran into the hallway screaming, never seeing who her husband's murderer was. Police were called, they started their investigation, and they started looking around for possible suspects. So on the fire escape just outside of their bedroom window, police found a shoe impression. They thought that this was a break in the case. They started tracking down the lead. It was believed to be a rubber sole boot. They examined the family shoes present. It was none of theirs, so they're on the right track. However, their daughter Joyce was known to have some late-night liaisons, fill in the blanks, and it wound up being one of her nighttime callers. So police had to find another clue, and they did find the shot shells that were present. They tracked them down to the West Coast, but they couldn't narrow it down any further. They continued to investigate, and this led to the discovery that Donald had been having an affair and his wife had recently found out. This woman's name was Eileen Hardcastle. Donald had met her in Wellington. He visited her whenever his business took him into her area, and they wrote back and forth quite often. This did not bring joy to Elizabeth, and she proceeded to start shredding Donald's clothes when she discovered their relationship. So we've all seen those videos online of the women cutting up the clothes, throwing them in on the front yard. That's what was happening here. So Donald wrote to Eileen about this behavior, and this led to the police to trip down the track of Elizabeth. She didn't have any GSR on her nightgown, so that would be gunshot residue. Nor did she have any bruising from a recoil. So like when you hold your shotgun, it's going to be up against your shoulder. We've shot many shotguns in the past. You don't always get a bruise, so I don't get why this was such an indicator that she didn't shoot a shotgun. When you shoot it multiple times, you'll get one, but a couple times, no. But... It really lacked evidence, and the shotgun was no longer present in their residence. So police could not take this case any further either, and they thought Elizabeth had something to do with the murder, but they didn't have any evidence to lay a charge. And we are left with another unsolved case. I'm sorry to keep doing that to you. So next hotel is a little twofer action, and we are now in Indianapolis at the Claypool Hotel. So first, we're in 1943, when at 8 p.m., a maid entered room 729. The maid was Lillian McNamara. She went into the room and discovered Corporal Mamoa L. Writings in a pool of her own blood on the floor. Yes, her own blood. She was nude from the waist down and had wounds to her head, neck, wrists, and broken whiskey bottles were laying all around her. It was determined that a blow to the head by the broken whiskey bottle was the cause of her death, with the cuts being either superficial or caused after her death, because when you die, your blood starts coagulating, you don't really bleed out as much, so it's either you bled too much before you died and then these stab wounds happened after, or since your blood was no longer flowing, that's why there was no blood coming out of the wounds. So... It could not be determined if she had been raped or had consensual sex prior to death, but it was for sure that sex had occurred. Prior to her brutal death, Momoa served as a physical therapist at Camp Atterbury at Edinburgh, Indiana. As a member of the Women's Army Corps, the WAC, she had been born in Georgia and worked as a therapist at the Warm Springs Infantile Paralysis Foundation, where she had been the nurse to Franklin Delano Roosevelt when he was being treated for polio as a child. She left that job to join the military in 1943, 
At the time of the murder, she was on leave from her duties to go to Indianapolis for a good old time. You know, when you're on leave, you want to celebrate, you want to have a little rowdiness happen. And it had been known that she brought her cash into town with her. And she was a frequent staple at all the local parties when she was on leave. And she scheduled a date that weekend with another member of the military. While she was waiting for her date, she went out, bought a bottle of whiskey, checked into her room, proceeded to call down for a little soda and ice. So she wants a whiskey soda. And upon interviewing hotel staff, a bellboy reported delivering ice to her three hours before she was found. And at that time, he saw another woman sitting on the bed when the victim went to the door. This woman that was sitting on the bed was between 38 to 40. She was attractive. She had black hair and she was wearing a black dress with a black hat with a veil. So it looks like she's a woman getting ready to go to a funeral in the 1940s. And when Momoa's date called on her at 6.30 p.m., she didn't answer. Instead of waiting for her, he thought that she'd gone out with someone else because he was running late. He accepted it and moved on with his own night. Like, he didn't hold it against her at all. The investigation started in the hands of the military police, who then turned the investigation over to the Indianapolis Police Department two days later. This change in investigation teams could theoretically have led to, like, a miscommunication or destruction of evidence. So police initially thought robbery was the motive because she only had 46 cents left in the room with her. And that wasn't even enough to pay for her hotel bill for the night. Police started running down suspects, and that actually took a couple of years. So Robert Wolfington, the bellboy who was the last one to see her alive and the one that claimed to see the woman in black... They had nothing to connect him to the crime, including no suspicious disappearances that night, no weird behavior. So he, even though he was the last one to see her, was discounted as a suspect. They came across another suspect, and that would be Jack Anderson Wilson. And he was an alleged cross-dressing murderer tied to many other homicides like the Cleveland Torso Killing, Black Dahlia, and more. I can't really, there's no proof of those, obviously. We know the Black Dahlia is unsolved. And then the torso murders, we'll cover that another day. But it was theorized that since he was a cross-dresser, that could explain him possibly being the woman in black that was in the room. But he died in 1982 in a hotel fire. Like, that's odd. So if he was the killer of any of these crimes, we will never know. Next up, we have Marie Simpson, who confessed to the murder when she was 27. She claimed that she knew the bellboy that worked at the Claypool, but her confession did not match any of the evidence of the crime scene, and so she was ruled out as a suspect. Then we have Robert Deormond, who was a hotel steward at the time of the murder. He clocked out from the hotel at 3.18 p.m., but did not arrive for his second job until 7.34 p.m. He had no alibi for the time of the murder. Ten years prior to the murder, he was a schoolteacher, and he raped a 10-year-old girl. For this crime, he was tried, convicted, and sentenced to 2 to 20 years. He was then transferred to the mental hospital, where he was treated for his quote-unquote deviance, and was released to the custody of his father in 1943, when the doctors believed that he was officially cured. When questioned about Momoa, it might be Mayoma, so I apologize if I've been saying that wrong. It's very hard to read. He had a cut on his hand, and he couldn't explain where he got the cut. But he was eventually ruled out, and the public was never told why he was ruled out. He just let go. So then we have Robert A. Watts, who at the time of his questioning confessed to the murders of two women. 
He was known to commit sex murders, and police believed that the sex could have been the motive behind Mayoma's murder. They questioned him, but he did deny killing her up until his execution. Over a year after the murder, William Llewellyn confessed that he and his wife went to her room that night and that she was the woman in black. His wife wasn't with him at the time of his confession because she had returned to Knoxville, where she was then arrested for burglary. She stated that her husband must have done his confession basically to just get back at her. And then she said that she had nothing to do with any murder. Then William withdrew his confession, and he did admit that the only reason he accused his wife was that he did not want her to run around on him while he was in prison serving time on other charges. So since he was going to prison, he wanted her to go to prison for the same exact amount of time. That is not love. So her case remains cold, and unlike the next case that happened in the same hotel. So we're a few years later, we're now July 18th, 1954. So I apologize, I gave you another insult. <clears throat> but now, on this day, again, a poor maid entered room 665 and smelled the unmistakable smell of decomposition. It, it's a very distinct smell, like sickeningly sweet, rotting papaya. So she knew what she was in for, and inside one of the dresser drawers, she found the body of a woman, and she hollered for the police. In the 48 by 24 by 10 inch drawer was the body of 5 foot 6, 125 pound, 18 year old Dorothy Poor. She had been dead around 36 hours and stuffed in the drawer during summertime in a room without air conditioning. Again, we're in 1954. When she was unfolded, it was witnessed that she was wearing a bra, underwear, and a slip. There were no external wounds, leading to speculation that she died by strangulation or smothering with, like, a pillow. Inside the room, air vents, in the air vents, they, when they pulled them off, they found items, which were her jeans, slippers, and a shopping bag. She had been in Indianapolis for job interviews because she was looking for career opportunities outside of her hometown of Clinton. So, side note into the occult, her grandmother stated that a fortune teller told her Dorothy should not go to Indianapolis to look for a job because she would die upstairs in a building. She would meet a person with light coloring that would grab her by the thread and take her pocketbook. Whatever that means. But back to the story. The room in this hotel was rented out to Jack O'Shea, which is believed to be an alias. This man allegedly, upon checking in, offered a bellhop $50 to go get a girl. So $50 in 1954. Police were able to put together a sketch of this man and started circulating the image. The vice president of Star Laundry Service and Dry Cleaners saw the picture and told police it could be one of his former employees, Victor Lively. Once tracked down, it was determined that Victor was a registered at the Kirkwood Hotel under his real name at the same time. He was a 25-year-old door-to-door roofing salesman. He had been married six times, fathering one child. After his arrest, he eventually confessed to drinking and hanging out. When he picked up Dorothy, brought her back to his room, he said they had an argument. He strangled her when she rejected his sexual advances. There was a 13-day trial. He was found guilty of the murder and attempted rape. He was sentenced to life in Indiana State Prison in Michigan City, 1954. And life, in this case, as always, meant he was actually paroled in July of 1980, where he died within a year. Claypool no longer exists as a fire had broke out in 1967, and that led to the doors being permanently closed until it was eventually demolished in 1969. 
Now we're going to get into the biggest one of all, and if you are a true crime aficionado like me, you have heard this reported before, and hopefully I give you a little different take. Because this one, it's the most famous hotel unsolved murder that ever happened, and this is titled Room 1046. So this one is famous, like I said, to the true crime community. On January 2nd, 1935, at 1.20 p.m., a man who gave the name Roland T. Owen checked into the President Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri. He only brought with him a comb, a hairbrush, and a toothbrush. He had a scar on his head, dark hair, and a cauliflower ear. So if you don't know what cauliflower ear is, it's when you are a boxer, an MMA fighter, and you get struck in the ear a lot. The cartilage starts to harden, and it forms like a very hard, firm texture, like picture your kneecap. And then eventually, it just starts uh, bubbling up, if you will, and continuing to make those hard deposits. And your ear eventually starts looking really lumpy, and it becomes really hard. You can still hear it's just very distinct to somebody who normally... Uh, has their ears struck on a regular basis. So this is the reason why I'm describing this is we still don't know who this man is. He didn't have any luggage or anything to show that he planned to stay for any extended period. When he checked in, he requested an interior room on a high floor. The hotel checked him into room 1046, and the bellhop escorted him up. While on the way, Roland made small talk, and he stated that he previously was at the Mühlhobach a hotel, but he did not want to pay the room fee because it was too high. So when he arrived at the room, he immediately placed his belongings in the bathroom. He collected the room key and left to proceed on with his day. He thought, like, this was odd, the bell guy. He thought this was, you know, not noteworthy, just he literally walked in, set things down, grabbed the key, took off. So six days later, he became noteworthy because he was found murdered in this hotel room. So first, we're going to examine the days preceding his death. The day after he checked in, the hotel maid, Mary Soapdick, noted that his door was locked from the inside. So when she knocked to ask him about cleaning, Roland told her, return later. Later, she was allowed entry. She saw the room was dark, and the only light was coming from a dim table lamp. Roland was present while she was cleaning, told her that he was expecting someone shortly, and he wanted her to leave the door unlocked when she was done, because he was going out. So he left her in the room, and he just wanted her to leave his door unlocked. So she saw him again that afternoon when she returned with clean towels. He was in bed, fully dressed, in a dark room, with a note on the desk that the nosy made read while her hotel guest was sitting right there. The note said, Dawn, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. The next morning, Mary returned to clean the room again, she unlocked the door because it was locked again, and she found Ronald still in the dark, and while she was there, the telephone rang. She heard Ro Roland's end of the conversation. No, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. Followed by a pause, then, no, I'm not hungry. Mary came back later with fresh towels again, and this time she heard two men talking. She knocked when she found the door locked. A man, she wasn't sure if it was Roland, asked who, who it was. When she said she wanted to bring fresh towels, knowing that she removed the soiled ones earlier in the day, she was then told, we don't need any. So it's at this point during the night, the guests on the 10th floor stated that they heard loud voices. So like not yelling, just hoopla, if you will, and that it appeared a party was happening. So that Friday after 7 a.m., 
The telephone operator for the hotel saw that the phone for room 1046 was off the hook. She requested for the bellboy to go to the room and told him to hang up the phone. So basically, his job was to go up there, knock, say, hey, your phone's off the hook. Can you please hang it up? This happened to be the same bellboy that had escorted Roland to the room when he checked in. And he saw the do not disturb sign was on the door and the door was locked. He knocked anyway. There was no response. He knocked a second time and a man told him, come in but the door was still locked. So he continued knocking with no other answer and finally just yelled through the door for the occupant to hang up the phone. When the phone was still off the hook later, the operator sent a different bellboy to the room to tell them to hang it up. This bellboy also encountered the locked door, where he unlocked it, let himself in, and found Roland on the bed, naked, apparently drunk. So the telephone had been knocked to the floor. Indeed, the receiver was off the hook. The bellboy replaced the phone and left the room, telling his supervisor when he returned downstairs that the occupant appeared drunk. The phone was knocked off the hook yet again that same day. The original bellboy was sent up yet again. He entered the room using his key and saw the man on his knees and elbows holding his head in his hands. So, like, picture if you're sitting on the floor and your knees and shins are on the ground and you're holding your head and your elbows are on the ground too. And he noticed blood on his head. And he turned on the light, replaced the phone receiver, then saw blood on the walls, the bed, the bathroom. He ran down to tell his boss what he saw. They quickly returned to the room, but this time they couldn't fully open the door because Roland had fallen in front of it. So they ran back downstairs, they called the police, and the police arrived along with a doctor. Roland had been tied by a cord around his neck, wrists, and ankles. He had knife wounds on his chest, one of which had punctured his lung. His skull was fractured on the right side. He had bruising on his neck. The investigation would state that it looked like he had been tortured. He told police and the doctor that his injuries were caused by a fall against the bathtub and that nobody had been in the room with him. So who did the ligatures? He didn't have an answer. While he was being treated, police examined the room in an attempt to piece together what happened, and they noted the blood on the bed, the walls, the ceiling. They also saw that there were no clothes in the room, except for a necktie. There were no weapons, no towels, there were no hygiene supplies. Suicide was not on the table. So he didn't try and do this to himself, and everything that could have done this to him wasn't present, and he was in clothes when he went to the hotel, and now he wasn't in clothes anymore. So... The necktie had like a label. So it, it wasn't the actual necktie. I apologize. It was the label for it. And the tie tag was from Botany Worsted Mills Company of Pasick, New Jersey. There was a hairpin, a safety pin, an unlit cigarette, an unused bottle of dilute sulfuric acid, two water glasses, one was broken and missing a jagged piece. There were fingerprints left on one of the glasses and the telephone. So... While police were doing their investigation, unfortunately, Roland died, and police then realized the name he used at check-in was not his real name. So though I continue to call him Roland, it's because we have no other name for him. Police put out a request for an identification on their victim, and this led to a lot of people thinking he was their missing loved one, and this led to a lot of numerous leads for false identifications. When it came time for him to be buried and not knowing a next of kin, this took place in a potter's field. But right before the burial, the funeral home received a phone call stating that the cost of the funeral would be covered and he should have a proper burial. The money arrived in cash in an envelope 
with no way to identify the mysterious benefactor. The flowers for the funeral were covered in the same manner. Two bouquets of 13 roses, with a tag that read, Love Forever, Louise. Only police were the ones that attended the funeral. No other guests were present or identified. A year and a half later, in 1936, a woman recognized the victim when his image was circulated in the American Weekly. It was his mother. So now we finally have the identification. Ruby Ogletree said the man's true identity was Artemis Ogletree. He was a 17-year-old boy. She identified the scar on his scalp, which was a result from a childhood injury from hot grease. He left home in Birmingham to hitchhike to California, and she stated she'd received a few letters from her son in 1935 after he was already dead. So who killed him? Why was he killed? What happened? Who paid for the funeral? Who paid for the flowers? Who's Louise? Who wrote the letters to his mother? Then to further this mystery, there was a box discovered 83 years later in 2003 when an anonymous caller contacted the Kansas City public librarian, John Horner, stating that they found a box of old newspaper clippings of the Ogletree murder. The contents of this box have never been publicly released, which leads those of us in the true crime community to the belief that these actually are evidentiary items that were found in this box. There's more information on this case that's readily available if you want more. There's different people who claim to see him during his time in New York, other pseudonyms that he was using at other hotels. But since this is an anthology series, not the deep dive or regular episode, you get a taste and not the whole cake. Sorry, not sorry. So just a reminder for when you guys are traveling this summer, when you check into a hotel, take all your belongings with you when you're leaving, including your murder victim. Don't be mean to those housekeepers. We've already had that happen, remember, in the Bluebird episode? Tip well. Vintage Homicide is produced by J.H. Cabral. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit bombshellbettyscalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery. Murder and mystery.